You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio. I've got Gray Williams with me today. Thanks for joining me. Always glad to be here. We've got a really cool program. Our show is all about technology. We try to keep it simple. I mean, it's changing like hourly. Uh, today we'll be talking with Brian Jackson from the Infotech Research Group about TikTok being banned by Canadian government Uh-oh. for government employees yes. and, and their devices because of privacy concerns. Yeah. And also people spend an average of 52 minutes per day on TikTok. That's the average. I, I heard that um, TikTok is limiting how much time that uh, kids under 18 can use it for. I would, I would like to see that for everyone. Yes. You had your TikTok allowance. It, Let's it, move on. <laughs> it's going to be an interesting conversation because, you know, the government is citing all sorts of privacy concerns. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, what about every other freaking social media platform? Yep. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, we, I get I get what they're trying to do. Like, obviously, they're concerned about China and the government there getting this information. But I'm telling you, all these other platforms, be it Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, whatever. Which are all the same company. Yes. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Twitter. They're all getting that same private personal information. Yeah. And please, the U.S. government's not looking at that. The idea here is to restrict it to just them, though. Yes. Because, yeah. Okay. Um <laughs> We're going to be talking with the folks at Deloitte as well about uh, electric fleet cars. Nice. And this is important. I don't know if you knew this. Uh, So when we're talking about fleets, uh, this is like commercial vehicles. Yeah. Okay. So buses, taxis, Ubers, light, medium, heavy trucks, semi-trucks. Yeah. So they represent about 20% of the vehicles on the roads in Canada. I had no idea. Yeah. Huh. However, do you know how much in emissions they represent? 60%. Whoo. So that is a lot. Yeah. So can you imagine if we can limit those emissions by electrifying the fleets, what that could do to the carbon footprint yeah. that they have? But there's challenges, right? And we'll, we'll be talking uh, with the folks at Deloitte about that because um, in some provinces, you know, let's look at Quebec and BC. That's fine because we have typically hydroelectric power. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at other provinces... Alberta, for example, that don't have that same hydroelectric infrastructure and they're burning natural gas to produce electricity. Mm. That's a whole other discussion then, right? Sure, sure. you've electrified the fleet. Let's say you're a delivery company with 50 vehicles. They're all electric now. That electricity still got to come from somewhere, right? Right. And if you're in a state or province that's still generating their electricity from natural gas, coal, Mm -hmm. that's not really, you're not really... (laughs) reducing the carbon footprint are you you're not no so we're gonna we're gonna kind of dive into that a bit it's not an easy journey yeah and subscriptions are you do you have subscription fatigue i'm so so tired of being subscribed to things okay but that's coming to cars now as well like nope. we've seen yes nope. yeah I'm out. yeah Good day. Uh, i mean it's been around for years like onstar yeah. like a lot of gm vehicles have onstar um bmw and others are trying to push subscriptions to access certain features. Which is ridiculous. Yes. Like heated seats and <laughs> stuff like that. extended range on your electric vehicle. Okay. okay yeah, no, I, I see it. We're yeah. going to talk about a really disturbing story. Uh, some of these subscriptions like OnStar and now VW has something similar. You can subscribe and if you ever lose your vehicle or it gets stolen, they can track it for you. Okay. Well, there's been an upsetting story about a VW SUV in Chicago that was stolen with a child in it. Oh, God. And the folks didn't have a subscription to this tracking service. And 
it costs valuable time trying to convince VW to hand over the information to the police so that they could rescue this child. It seems like they need a subscription to common sense at that point. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna cover that uh, as well. Uh, let's just talk about some of the news uh, right now. Um, Netflix. We'll we'll be going a little deeper in tomorrow's app show about this, but um, it looks like business is not as good in other countries mm-hmm. right now. Obviously, they're they're putting the squeeze on us here in Canada by making us pay for extra users that are outside our house. But in thirty countries, it's trying to attract more subscribers they've actually lowered the price in Asia, Europe, and Latin America, and some sub-Saharan African Middle East countries too. I hear there's actually word afoot to uh, change Canada's national pastime from hockey to just paying more for things than other people do in other countries. That's our national pastime. Well, we're pretty good at that. Yeah. 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 Uh, Netflix, they operate in more than 190 countries. Obviously, the competition's heavy now, right? You've got Amazon Prime Video, you've got HBO, you've got Disney... Disney Plus, Apple TV Plus, there's a lot to choose from. Yeah. And so it seems that these other countries, it's gotten a little too competitive. So they've actually had to lower the prices there. Not happening in Canada because we're stupid <sighs> and they're making us pay more. Not me. So I'm going to give you a little incentive to to the listeners to listen to tomorrow's app show. Uh, I found a little loophole in adding people because I've got a, you know, a few kids that have left home now. Yes. I found a loophole in adding extra users. It's worth turning in. It, it, yes. Yep. I mean, if you can save some money. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, this is an interesting little news piece here. I don't know if you saw this, uh, John Deere, they've got this, this cool tractor now that can really hone in on weeds. So, you know, with big fields, yeah. they've got the tractors out there spraying, weed killer yeah but unfortunately in pesticides but unfortunately as, as we all know it's covering everything yeah so there's a lot of waste obviously in the weed killer yeah uh and also do you want all this stuff on your lettuce probably not that saturated yeah no so they've got these new tractors and you know they've the giant arms come out the side right yep. as they're driving down the field through the rows there they've got 36 cameras on there neat and so they can actually analyze two million pixels per second looking at all these plants and weeds and it's got like a, a database of 300,000 plants slash weeds and it can actually identify the weeds in real time and just spray those weeds. It's like a weed terminator. It, it is. Dun, dun, isn't dun, isn't dun, that dun. crazy? It is. Did you know that John Deere was one of the first companies to do content marketing? They released a John Deere Almanac way back in the early 20th century and that was the, one of the first pieces of content marketing that we see represented in things like blogs today. Woof. Okay, we're going to have to take a break. When we come back, TikTok banned by the Canadian government. What does it mean for the government employees and you? Back after this. You are back with the program. Mike Agarbo here in studio. I've got my good friend, Brian Jackson, joining us. He's from the Infotech Research Group. Thanks for uh, coming on the program, Brian. Always happy to join you, Mike. We're talking TikTok today, which, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, for the people that don't know what that is still, it's a, a very, very popular uh, social video sharing app. You can create uh, small video clips uh, that uh, then get posted and uh, super easy to scroll through literally hundreds of millions of different uh, videos on every kind of topic that you can imagine. Big concerns about privacy from a lot of the Western 
countries and governments uh, because it is owned by ByteDance, which is a Chinese company. uh, And concerns are that uh, they potentially could be sharing private information about users with the Beijing government. So, Brian, uh, this has kind of been brewing for a while. Yeah, it really has. I mean, I even think back to when Donald Trump uh, decided that Oracle would have to host all of the TikTok data for the U.S. as if that would prevent it from getting to uh, the Beijing government. But of course, uh, we found out later uh, just last year you know that it still was getting to the employees in china they still had access to it and uh they've still been working on a framework that would avoid that whole situation because the concern really is that the chinese government they operate totally differently from the governments here in canada and the u.s and basically there's a different standard of privacy whereas here in our democratic societies we want that total separation of the state from our private companies and uh you know while certainly social media corporations collect a lot of information about us well that's just so they could advertise products to us mike not so the government could spy on us (laughs) although i guess that's happened before too it has happened it has happened it has the nsa has been taking information anyway that's a whole other story that's the irony of it right is that the china is explicit about the fact that it can collect information from its private companies while uh the u.s in the u.s they just do it without stating that they're doing it uh, or at least they have in the past right now we shouldn't say of course it's not like we've ever discovered specifically that uh social media companies operating in the u.s have handed have just wholesale handed information over to the government uh they try and disclose when they do that in in the context of uh legal investigations and working with law enforcement but the issue here is that uh ByteDance, the owner of tiktok is based in china and that um you know the, the tiktok we do know it collects an awful lot of personal information about us and in fact there was even evidence in a forbes investigation last year that tiktok was going to be used to track the location of specific u.s citizens mike so um you can see why governments are at least worried about enough about this app to say let's not have it on the devices that people working for government are using at the federal level it's really difficult to to peel this onion uh brian because you know as we were saying all these social sites whether they're chinese or american or whatever country they gather ungodly sums of information about us right it's so true just to cover the basis of what tiktok does know about its users i mean there's the stuff you you would expect like email address phone number your date of birth assuming you put it in there all the profile information you put in but it also is collecting your device information and your location uh what app activity do you uh have on the device not just with tiktok but with other apps uh, it downloads your phone contact list. It shares your browser and search history. If you've ever copied anything on your device, it has access to your device's clipboard, 
Do you load in from your biometrics onto your device? Maybe you use face scan or your thumbprint to unlock your device. It has that too. And it even scrapes information from your other social media accounts. So when you look at the collection of the data that it is collecting about its users, it does feel like an awful lot of information uh, and you sort of have to question whether it needs all of that just to serve us some videos. But are the other social companies doing that as well? Yes, they are. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I just I just wanted to lay the, the groundwork uh, out here. Okay. So the challenge is, as you were saying earlier, it's, you know, supposedly in on the Western side, uh, there is kind of supposedly church and state between corporations and the government. The government's not supposed to be able to just willy-nilly just get any private information about citizens from these social sites. Whereas in China, uh, the government does potentially have access to information that corporations have because that's just essentially the, uh, the law. So now the Canadian government has basically come out and said, we are we are banning TikTok from government devices. Do you see this going further? Do you think this will go down to consumers as well? Like you were saying, Trump tried to ban it, uh, and it looked like there was actually going to be a sale of TikTok to an American company like Oracle or, or Microsoft, I think it was going to be. I don't know where, whatever happened with that. Yeah, I think that they're still working through those questions and trying to put in place a more of a framework where the data is truly segregated from China in the U.S. And I think the Canadian decision will follow what happens in the U.S. in this case, because you look at uh, the size of TikTok in Canada, there's about 3 million users of um, TikTok in Canada. And in the U.S., there's like 100 million users almost. So um, that's we're not that's incredible. Off. That's incredible amount. Right. Almost like, um, you know, 30% of Americans almost, right? Yeah. So it's really a huge amount, um, and it shows you just how popular this app is. So banning it from on a consumer uh, level would sort of be an infringement upon personal liberties and um, affecting people, even young people too, right? You look at the demographic uh, of the uses that are likely to be on TikTok, it's that Gen Z demographic, right? So you're affecting them more than uh, government would probably want to, but I wouldn't rule it out, especially since the US and is really uh, souring its relationship with China on a political level. And of course, this is all about politics at this point. It's not really about the technology or um, the data access or where their data resides. It's about whether uh, the U.S. is comfortable at all with having a Chinese-owned company um, that has such a insight into the uh, data uh, habits, the personal information of so many U.S. citizens and, uh, you know, could be identifying sensitive uh, information on government, uh, from government people or even um, essential or critical industries. It's interesting. I look at uh, Jagmeet Singh, uh, the NDP leader here in Canada, and this isn't good for him because he currently has like 870,000 followers on TikTok. <laughs> Right, he's uh, probably the most popular MP that I can tell that's on there, uh, using it quite a bit. Now, of course, 
I noticed that his account is still active and he could continue to use his TikTok account as long as he's doing that from a personal device. Yeah. Right. What the government is saying is like, if you're using, like, if you basically, if you're signing into your government email from your mobile device, you're not allowed to have TikTok on there. And that can be managed through modern mobile device management applications. So it's easy to accomplish that actually with a, with a policy. Um, uh, there's other MPs that I was looking at who are on TikTok. For example, Melissa Lansman is the conservative deputy leader and member for Thornhill, Ontario. She had 160,000 followers wow. on TikTok, and it looks like she's deleted her account now. So that was the choice she made. And I- then there's Matthew Green, the NDP member for Hamilton Centre. Uh, he has fewer followers, 7,750, um, but... He will keep his account. It's still active there, and he'll continue to operate it from a personal device, it sounds like. Yeah, from what I read, Jagmeet Singh says he's um, evaluating uh, TikTok right now. So it looks like he won't be posting anything from his personal TikTok on a personal phone, I guess. Uh, But he did say that he won't be using it on, on any government phone. Or device, right. and he wouldn't be able to. Yeah, yeah, it's not even a choice anymore because <laughs> the way um, the government operates, it's mobile mobile devices. Of course, it has a good uh, mobile device management plan that's uh, managed by IT, and they they have the control even over the uh, the devices to the extent that if they don't want an app on there, they can delete it. We're talking all about TikTok, uh, one of the fastest uh, rising social. Uh, video apps uh, right now. Looks like the Canadian government's going to be banning that app from government devices. Uh, you know, we did talk about, you know, the overall, would it be banned in its entirety? And I think we've come to the conclusion, Brian, there's too much money involved. It would most likely be sold to a Western or an American company like a Microsoft. Yeah, I could see that happening as an outcome. Uh, certainly if there was just no way that uh, the U.S. government basically would accept that China's involvement with ByteDance, um, then ByteDance would have to sell it off, I guess. It's some sort of fair market value to um, a U.S.-operated company so that the users could continue to access the service. That, that could be a path forward here. Brian, I want to thank you for joining us again. Hey, thanks for having me. When we come back from the break, more tech to talk here on Get Connected. Stay tuned. You are back with the program. Mike Agarbo here in studio. A few weeks ago, we talked about uh, electric vehicles uh, in depth, uh, some of the charging challenges, and even kind of dove in a little bit about fleet uh, electrification as well. Companies uh, with delivery trucks and things like that, and the challenges they would have or, or have even now in uh, deploying large numbers of uh, these electric vehicles just because of the charging situation. But uh, according to a new report from Deloitte, I think it's more important now than ever to kind of hasten the electrification of uh, large-scale uh, fleets. On the line, we've uh, got Darren Plested from Deloitte. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, this was one interesting statistic uh, that uh, I, I read uh, in 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 doing this report here, uh, that commercial vehicles account for about 20% of all vehicles, but generate over 60% of the country's road transport emissions. That is a staggering amount. It is a staggering amount. And in the report, we found that um, 
about 25% of emissions in Canada actually come from the transportation sector. And even though 20% of the vehicles on the road are commercial vehicles, they contribute about 60% of that carbon. So it's a significant uh, contribution to our carbon problem and our carbon challenge. And um, therefore, you know, having these companies uh, transition to zero emission solutions is really going to move the needle for us in Canada in a big way. So there are a lot of incentives uh, being uh, developed by the, the government that are already in place, many more to come, I'm, I'm sure, uh, to try and help companies really get over the capital burden that's involved in doing these transitions. Let's just start at what is a transport? What is the transport sector? What kind of vehicles make up these commercial vehicles? Yeah, good question. So basically anything we consider transport is anything on, on the road transport. So it could be on the road or off the road. So the mining sector, as an example, has heavy duty vehicles that they basically don't run on the roads, but they are factored into that transport sector. So um, anything from, you know, generally speaking, anything from class one through to class eight vehicles is generally what we're talking about. So these are light, light duty passenger vehicles, light duty commercial vehicles or trucks, and then medium-duty vehicles, which would be like, like box trucks and box vans that you see running around delivering our postal and our courier services. And then everything right up to the semi-trucks that you see on the road pulling big trailers. Those would be the Class 8s. And are, then are, we talking like, are we talking like taxis and Ubers as well? Does that kind of get classed in there? Absolutely. So taxis and Ubers would be classified into the, the light-duty sector. And it's interesting, if you add it all up, um, we've got about... 36% of uh, carbon emissions coming from the heavy duty sector. So that would be the, the big semi trucks that you see on the road. We have about 30% of emissions coming from light duty commercial vehicles or trucks, if, if you want to call them that. And then there is about another 18% that comes from light duty passenger vehicles. And light, light duty passenger vehicles is actually a little bit vague because you can have people that have commercial sales vehicles as an example, maybe be driving a car as part of their, their uh, corporate fleet, and that would get classed into light duty passenger vehicles. So in fact, the 60% number that we've stated could actually be a little bit more if you consider corporate fleets into that, that would include cars and light duty trucks and vans. What about things like rental cars? Is that kind of classed in there as well? That would get classed in there as well. Yeah, that's right. So in our show a few weeks ago, we, we talked about the challenges about the electrified vehicle world. A lot of governments around the world are trying to mandate, you know, all new cars have to be uh, electric by 2035, for example. I think yeah. there's still some huge barriers when it comes to charging all these vehicles, and especially, I think, when it comes to fleet vehicles, because I feel just knowing technology, the technology is just not quite there yet from a battery mm. perspective and then the charging perspective as well. I know Tesla has come out with their semi, uh, but there's still huge hurdles to overcome. There's going to be a lot of hurdles to overcome, and it's not only on the vehicle supply side. So right now we've got, at the time that we wrote our paper, there was about 19 different commercial vehicles available to electrify. Um, and that's going to change. Obviously, there's a lot coming down the pike, and the OEMs are really scrambling to make new vehicles and put them on their platforms. And that's largely been driven around the policies and the regulations that the governments are putting in place. Um, on the on the commercial side, um, which is where we really focus the the work on this paper, um, there there's a lot of demand on the charging infrastructure, and you can imagine that 
That comes in many ways. Most of the commercial vehicles that we see in play are coming back to a common base at the end of the day. And so they can have a charging infrastructure at their home base, if you want to call it that. And that makes it a little bit easier to put in infrastructure to charge those vehicles um, than it would be to you know, put them all around a network where they have to charge on a regular frequency as they're traveling. Um, but that doesn't reduce the complexities of putting that charging infrastructure in place and the cost of doing so. So what you're seeing there is there's a couple of problems. One, power generation. Is there enough power actually being created to power all these things of the future? Two, distribution. Can you actually get it distributed to the places that it needs to? And who's gonna pick up the cost of that? And that's the bigger challenge, I would say. If you, you know, we heard um, the CEO of BC Hydro speak at the, uh, at the um, Vancouver Board of Trade meeting a, a couple of weeks ago. And he's saying on the generation side, there isn't a problem. They actually have enough capacity to be able to manage the future demand, which is very encouraging to hear. And I think a lot of utility companies would echo that. I think the bigger challenge is how do you get it to the right place at the right time? And what's the cost of doing that? So the distribution challenge, I think, is a bigger one for us at the moment. And if you look at, you know, the traditional um, gasoline and diesel distribution networks, they're pretty well advanced in North America and around the world. We've got a lot of work to do on that front is to develop those new charging entities of the future. Now, whether that's at a home-based charging location where amperage needs to be increased New transformers need to be put in place. All new in infrastructure needs to be put in place to power those commercial vehicles of the future. I think that's underway right now, and that's a big challenge. Or if it's putting public charging infrastructure in place with charge point operators, um, like we're seeing in our market with Flow and ChargePoint and others like that, that are developing private networks that can service our vehicles of the future. So that's all evolving very quickly, but um, it's definitely constrained at the moment. You talked about the home charging situation. I look at, uh, and when you say home, home base, sorry, uh, Amazon, for example, they've bought a, a, you know, a, a bunch of Rivian electric trucks, and obviously they're kind of delivering locally uh, for the most part. So when they kind of run out of juice, they got to come back to the home base to charge up again. Uh, but if we're talking about any longer range transport, I think we're still many years away from that. Like if you have to have a semi truck bring a load of Pepsi, uh, you know, a couple states across or into another province or, or what have you, there's just no infrastructure to handle that currently. It's even hard just, you know, with regular electric vehicles to have, you know, level three chargers that can charge your car in a decent amount of time, like, you know, in half an hour to 45 minutes. Can you imagine charging a, a Tesla semi, semi? Like that would take a long time and have to have like a pretty decent infrastructure, like you're saying. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, the class eights and the, the heavier duty or vehicles that drive longer ranges, I think are going to be the last to adopt because of that challenge. Until the infrastructure's in place, it probably won't make sense. And in our Canadian market, actually, there's some, there's a lot of consideration around hydrogen fuel cell technology for those longer haul vehicles. And that's actually becoming interesting because in the cold weathers that we operate, sometimes that, that's a better solution. So I think there's a bit of a, a race on right now for those heavy duty vehicles, whether they will electrify or whether the hydrogen fuel cell will be the solution of choice. But it was interesting, I was just on the phone with our friends at Volvo this morning and they have a class eight vehicle that's up and running already. They have uh, four battery and six battery packs. They will have a range of about 300 kilometers with the six battery pack. So it's got a decent range on it. Um, I don't know if it's you know where we need it to be to be able to make it 
operationally effective. If you're traveling across the country in Canada, is 300 kilometers enough for you? Probably not. Um, but we also are seeing um, battery technology advance at a very fast rate. So the battery density is getting much better. And there's a promise in the future of what they call solid state batteries, which will have almost double the energy density, if not more, of current batteries today, which will give some of these vehicles up to a thousand kilometer range. So if that if that comes down the pike here fairly quickly, then we could see that landscape change for those long haul trucks. I'm interested in that battery technology, but also kind of the the weight capacity as well. Because when we're talking about you know these these vehicles, these uh, light and heavy duty trucks and semi trucks, uh, you know the second that you start actually putting cargo. <laughs> into the trucks that kills the battery you know we've seen a lot of these uh first generation of pickup trucks not a lot what the ford f-150 lightning for example uh the moment that that thing tows anything the battery is just the battery life is like toast you know what i mean you're not going to get hundreds of kilometers out of that you're going to be lucky to get uh, across the city you know if you're towing like a ten thousand pound trailer it's absolutely true and I, i would say that um most of the testing that's being done on these heavy commercial vehicles are being tested with full loads. You know, there, it would be, um, it would probably be a little bit, uh, funny for a company not to be testing them when they're putting out a truck to, <laughs> to you know, tow large payloads and not be testing them for that. So I think that you're seeing that Tesla's all of their tests that have been done right now are with full load capacities. So I think, um, you know, versus those that are, you know, like a Ford F100 or a, a 150 Lightning, um, you know, a lot of argument going on in the in the um, chat rooms right now as to what that towing capacity actually is. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think that, you know, the majority of their audience is going to be towing on a regular basis, whereas commercial vehicles, they will. So I think those payload capacities are being put into the tests. We're talking about uh, the electrification of uh, fleets, uh, all the uh, light and heavy-duty trucks, the semis, taxis, and Ubers, and some of the challenges that lay ahead. Darren, where can people find out more information uh, and maybe read this report as well? Yeah, we've got um, uh, on our Deloitte Insights page, uh, you can have a look at that. It's got a lot of information, including this one that we've just published. And uh, feel free to uh, just sign up to Deloitte.ca or Deloitte.com. And you have a, 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 an opportunity to dig into Deloitte Insights and all of our eminence around this is, uh, is published there. Thanks for joining us uh, today, Darren. My pleasure. Thank you. That was uh, Darren Plested from Deloitte. When we come back, more tech to talk here on the show. Back after this. You are back with the program. Mike Agarbo here in studio. We're going to talk subscriptions. And I, I know a lot of us are getting subscription fatigue when it comes to things like Spotify, Apple Music, Netflix, Amazon Prime, uh, it goes on and on. I, th- I think I'm spending like a couple hundred dollars in subscriptions uh, for all these different types of digital services. But subscriptions are also kind of uh, bleeding their way into other areas as well that you might not have thought of before, including vehicles. You know, We've heard of uh, companies like uh, BMW wanting to charge subscriptions uh, for some of the features uh, in their car. Uh, and now we want to talk about a story uh, about VW, uh, that uh, was a little concerning. We've got Carmi Levy on the line, uh, one of our tech experts uh, out of Toronto. Thanks for joining us, Carmi. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. I don't even know how to, to preface this particular story, Carmi, but VW, uh, they have a, a subscription uh, for some of their vehicles. 
Yeah, it's called VW CarNet, and it's kind of like General Motors, OnStar, or any other service that you know pretty much every other major automotive manufacturer offers. It provides onboard telematics. If you get lost, you can ask them for help. Many of them have operators, so you can sort of reach directly, or they can feed information into the uh, into the infotainment system on the car. So you want to find a restaurant? It's nothing that Google doesn't already do, but in some cases, it's a more human sort of you know there, there's a human behind the technology and. A lot of people, a lot of car, car companies feel it's worth paying for, um, and it's certainly worth marketing because then you're not just selling them the car, you're selling them a monthly subscription for the life of the car, which can be a pretty lucrative, high-margin business. So it's kind of like VW's version of OnStar, which I, I think may, probably more people are familiar with. Very much so. And and you know, and then one of the features that would be included in, in VW CarNet is it's vehicle tracking. So if, for example, your car is stolen, it has onboard GPS, and then you, the, the folks at Carnet can use it to track the location of the car uh, and help law enforcement uh, and provide that information to law enforcement so that they can recover it safely. Um, that's the theory anyway. The problem is, is that not everyone who who uh, who buys a VW will subscribe to it. So you, you, in effect, you will have cars that have the hardware on board. So they've got the GPS, they've got all the radios, um, they've got the capability but the individual who bought the car did not pay to activate it, didn't buy the subscription. Um, and so what, what then happens, you know, the protocol generally is, well, if the car is stolen, if there is some kind of life-threatening emergency, most companies will make, uh, a, you know, they'll, they'll issue a waiver. They'll say, sure, you know, people's lives are at stake. Subscription, no subscription. We're just going to work with law enforcement. Um, that didn't seem to happen in one particular case in Chicago and as a parent. And I've been there, you know, putting my kid in the car seat and carrying him into the house. Uh, this particular story absolutely terrifies me. So in this particular case, uh, you're saying in Chicago, uh, a VW SUV that had, I guess, this subscription feature, but uh, apparently um, the owner, you know, didn't subscribe to it. Uh, that car got, SUV got carjacked and there was a child in it, correct? Yeah, and and. Yeah, and we've all been there. Like, I, I've got three kids. So, I mean, at various points in my life, I would, you know, get home, park in the driveway, you know, pull one out of the, the car seat, carry them into the house, uh, and this literally right into the house. I'm right there. But the other child would be in the car alone for a few seconds, and then go back and get the second one, and that would be it. In this case, that's what happened. The, the mom pulled up in front of the house. She, she brought one child inside. The second child, the two-year-old boy, was still in the back seat, in the car seat. And while she was in, as she came out into the house, carjackers pulled up in front of the house um, and stole the car, beat the mother, uh, stole the car, ran over her as they drove away. Thankfully, she was okay. She called 911 and told them, uh, you know, told them that the car had onboard tracking. That's one of the questions they asked. And uh, when the police called VW Carnet, Carnet said, well, we're not going to, we're not going to track the vehicle because there isn't an active subscription. And the police say that their pursuit of the car, and this is life-threatening information, needs to happen now. Um, they were delayed while VW Carnet dithered over whether, in fact, to provide the service or not. Eventually, they did after a few minutes, after charging the family $150. And uh, the police ultimately recovered the vehicle. The child was dropped off in a parking lot safe. He is fine. Um, but, and, you know, the mom is, was hospitalized, serious but stable condition, but Volkswagen did not help this. They delayed law enforcement response that could have very easily gone the other way, all because the family did not subscribe to their service to begin with and their protocol to waive that, that payment 
uh, in the event of a life-threatening emergency. Uh, for whatever reason, they called it a serious breach of process and they're investigating. Uh, a kid almost died because of that. This is not good PR for VW. <laughs> or, 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 Carmi, or is it? Because they've made national news with this. And, yeah. and are they going to get a bunch of VW owners? I better get a subscription. Yeah, I, I think that's maybe one of those cases where they win the battle but lose the war. They'll probably get a few paranoid parents now who look at their v, you know relatively new VWs and go, gee, when I was at the dealership, I didn't think it was worth buying the subscription, but now I will, and I'll call, the, I'll call the dealership or whatever, and I'll sign up for it. So they'll probably get a few of those, but at the same time, this is a terrible corporate look. This you know, VW is saying that uh, they were working with a third-party provider for Carnet support services, and you know, this doesn't uh, matter. It doesn't it, matter, Carmi. It's them, right? It's it, VW. Oh, it, 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 exactly. But of course, their PR will try to throw them under the bus and make themselves look good. But you know, for, there's no way to make yourself look good here. You are the company record. Uh, they didn't buy. They bought a VW, and that when you subscribe to services on that VW, there's only one company that matters: VW, and. And so they better own this. And I think this is a message to the rest of the industry. Don't tell me about third parties. Don't play games with subscriptions. Recognize that these technologies can save lives and put processes in place, iron-clad processes in place, so that this never happens again. Because if it does, I guarantee you, and I'm pretty sure in this case, the lawsuits are already probably flying. Uh, and I, I fully hope this family sees the living daylights out of Volkswagen Auto Group, and I hope they win. So any uh, new subscriptions that VW might have gotten out of this will be uh, <laughs> canceled by all the the millions that they'll probably have to pay in, in losses. Yeah. And you know, you, you got to know that this is probably not the only incident of this happening. Oh, absolutely. What, what often happens when a case like this hits the headlines is suddenly the the, the light is uh, is sort of directed onto other cases. So I would expect over the next few weeks and months. We're going to see more of this. We'll see more, you know, especially the automotive press, paying more attention to subscription services, telematics, um, and cases where things went completely off the rails and, uh, and you know, where, where things weren't done as they should. There's a lot of anger over the industry's shift towards subscription services. For example, BMW have gotten a lot of negative PR over its plans to charge subscription fees for heated seats. So they'll build the car with the heated seat hardware but you can only activate it in certain cases by paying a subscription fee. And, you know, from where I sit, uh, it is a, it, it's a very slippery slope. Cars are already expensive as it is. Um, average transaction prices are higher than they've ever been. Some monthly financing uh, rates are like $1,000 more for an average vehicle. It's beyond affordable, and then you'll have to pay subscription fees on top of that. I think we're on the verge of a consumer revolt here. We've been talking about Carmi. Uh, we've been talking with Carmi Levy uh, all about uh, subscriptions going wrong in vehicles, and we'll have to continue following that story. Thanks for joining us, Carmi. Appreciate being here, Mike. Thank you. That's all the time we have left. Don't forget to uh, listen to our uh, our sister show. Uh, it's uh, on our website www.getconnectedmedia.com. dot com. It's called Get Connected Radio, and you can get uh, all the podcasts and uh, past shows as well. We'll see you again next time.